You're listening to Environmental Investing, the show where we explore market-based approaches to environmental challenges. I'm Aaron Appleton, and on today's show, Renewable Energy in Frontier Markets. What are some of the most promising technologies and often overlooked regions to invest in? Nature is the capital upon which all economies and all nations are actually dependent. $7.2 trillion are brought to the United States alone by ocean-related businesses. We have 38 established environmental financial markets. Energy returned on energy investment. cleaner company had a higher P.E. ratio. On this episode, we have Kyle Weber and Ayu Abdullah joining us over the phone from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. They are co-founders of the organization Energy Action Partners, where they focus on developing community-based electrification systems in many emerging and frontier markets around the world. Prior to this work, they had extensive experience in the energy sector, including working as field engineers in the oil and gas industry in United Arab Emirates, working as project engineers to plan and repair renewable energy infrastructure in northern Somalia, and working as research engineers with Mazdar Institute of Science and Technology. Hi, Kyle and Ayu. Thank you for joining us. Uh, It's great to be here. All right. So to start things off, I'd love for you to give a brief overview of the work that you're currently involved in. So what we do uh, is a lot of energy access and educational programs with the outcome being human development. So a lot of the work that we do involves community participation, training and capacity building, really getting communities to understand renewable energy or technology that could help in their own development. Ayu, is there anything else that you'd like to add to that? So I would say that our our nonprofit Energy Action Partners, we work in the area of energy access, which is basically to ensure that everyone everywhere has access to clean and modern energy. We don't do this by just distributing clean energy technology, but we actively focus on capacity building and educational programs and activities to support the development of community energy systems. And I use the word systems instead of technology to basically have an idea that it encompasses a lot more than just technical systems, but it includes social structures, financial systems, and environmental issues. We believe in developing community-centered energy systems a lot of community participation, co-developing their own systems according to their own self-defined needs and requirements for development. Our programs are built around this. And so currently we offer workshops and not just for community members, but also for university students and young professionals interested in the field of energy access. We've been running this one workshop for the last three years And it gives an overview of all the different pieces in planning an energy system. And they're usually held in developing countries so that participants gain different perspectives on energy and community development at the same time. We also do some community energy design and implementation ourselves. And we offer some consulting services for energy planning. Uh, Kyle and I, you and I first met several years ago in Somaliland, which is also referred to as Northern Somalia. They have an incredibly interesting background, rich with experiences, and I'm curious to find out how you first got interested in the work that you're doing and what led you to where you are now. Sure. So after completing our engineering degrees, we both actually joined an oil and gas services company with the intention of 
getting some work experience. But then after a year or so of, of working in that kind of an industry, it was very obvious what the environmental toll was from drilling oil and, and using all these chemicals and just seeing how the environment gets affected by all this. We left after about that time and we sort of decided to travel around and see what we wanted to do with our lives. We had all this education and training, but then didn't have the motivation really to apply it in a way that was traditional. So after traveling around, we actually ended up where we met you in Somaliland. We had some time to see how important education was and what the real needs were, be able to develop uh, those connections between energy access and the current infrastructure that's there. So after, after that, we were actually in a school in Somaliland. We were the only engineers there, and they asked us to put up a wind turbine. And we had no idea how to do it at that point. We had some basic engineering skills, but nothing to tell us how to erect a wind turbine and build a foundation and make sure that it was sized accordingly to the community, which was this school. We found someone at Mazdar who was willing to help us out, and... Through Mazdar and that contact, we actually eventually became students there. Uh, it gave us a lot of experience in the renewable energy field and development. So after some time in Mazdar, then we started this nonprofit with uh, one of our colleagues there. Yeah, it's kind of been a long journey, but in the end, I think we've found an area where we really know that our skills are being applied in a useful way. And it's something that we really believe in. And Kyle, you're from the U.S. originally, isn't it the Chicago area? Yep, I'm from Chicago. I I was born and grew up in Penang, which is a a little island state. I did my undergraduate degree in the States. So given your backgrounds in engineering and renewable technologies, what energy systems do you think are the best to focus on in the country of Malaysia? I mean, Malaysia is somewhere which is rich in solar resources and hydro resources. Those two things combined generally are enough to give energy access to communities that don't have it. Even for urban users, they can put solar panels on their roof and there is a feed-in tariff that exists where you could sell that power back to the grid and one of the nonprofits that we've been working for, they specialize in micro hydro. They install 10 kilowatt systems, sometimes a bit smaller. They install those in villages and, and have a microgrid, and they, their impact has been pretty incredible. I, I think that with renewable energy, you should never really just focus on one technology. You should always focus on a few different technologies that, that make a really healthy renewable energy mix. And so with Malaysia, like Kyle said, I think solar and hydro make sense and, and biomass as well because there's a lot of palm oil plantations and agriculture. I think that the, the general public perception is poor when it comes to renewable energy. People tend to not really have much confidence in renewable energy and that's just because we've been such a fossil fuel-based economy. We're a net exporter in natural gas and that, that's been a major sector in our economy. And so even though we've got these great resources that we should be focusing on and, and trying to move away from the dependency on oil, I think that 
we've got a lot of barriers and challenges to face before we're actually in a position where we could integrate more renewables into our grid. It's actually interesting because some places in Malaysia have really accepted the renewables and they know their value. Like, for example, the KL International Airport, almost every roof is covered in solar panels. It's something crazy like 19 megawatts. And I don't think anyone in Malaysia knows about it. But they've been able to make a case for putting that much solar installation in. And there's a few houses that we know of that have it on their roof. The resource is definitely here. The transition can happen very quickly. And is there a particular renewable energy technology that you're most excited about? I'm actually very excited about solar. From my experience, anytime you have moving parts, there's always a lot of maintenance issues that go into it. When you have wind turbines, when you have microhydros, there's just so much maintenance that has to happen. And when you break a part, you have to replace it. I guess the same could be said about solar in some ways. You know, there, there are some connectors that can sometimes melt or you can have some fuses blow. But in general, I would say that solar is a lot simpler than the other technologies. And because of that alone, it's something that excites me because especially when you go to a place that's far off the grid, doesn't have access to a lot of the kind of parts that you need, it's really easy to suggest solar. You can assess the resource very simply. You don't need any complicated tools. If you're going to assess the wind resource, you need a sensor just to know. And you have to lift it high enough into the air where you could get to the point where it would be. It's very easy to assess solar. And if it's at the ground level, I would say it's very easy to access it. Whereas a wind turbine needs a crane to bring it down, to maintain it, to and then lift it up again. Yeah. And, and solar is also a lot more flexible. You can have solar at almost every scale. You can scale it down to a solar light or, or you can have a huge solar farm that's just generating megawatts. So it's a lot easier to deploy and bring to off-grid locations. And it's modular, so you could always add on and connect. I try to sort of be technology agnostic but at the same time it's like well solar kind of is is a lot easier and the sun is everywhere if you look at the global map of energy resources there's a lot more solar resource in every location in the world compared to all the others right so just like elon musk says you know we've got a fusion reactor in the sky it just shows up every day it's like it's right there what are some of the risks or difficulties with using solar photovoltaic technology and why isn't it currently deployed more widely throughout the world? Um, so I would say we've talked to a number of people about this and tried to get their opinions because we've also been wondering the same question. And I think it comes down to a lot of perception that sometimes is politically motivated. Some of the perceptions in some of the places we've been, people say that it's not suitable for that area. But they don't really know why. They just know that it's not suitable, which is usually false. Some other things that we've heard have been that people think it's not safe, which it's just as safe as any other technology, to be honest, and that it's not able to provide enough power, which may or may not be true. But if you have the surface area, you can generate the amount of power that any power plant can generate. It's just a matter of space. Uh, those are some of the sort of common things that we've heard. So sometimes it's difficult to integrate that technology into the current 
grid or the current infrastructure which is there. If the current infrastructure is very weak or if it's decentralized, then it's really hard to put renewable energy and say a diesel generator together and get them to sync because especially when that, that diesel generator is sort of wildly fluctuating because a lot of times what happens is it sort of propagates back and then it will destroy whatever the grid integration system. So we've seen that problem happen before. It's really sort of frustrating because if you invest a lot of money in renewable energy and then you don't see the usefulness of it, a lot of times the effects are a lot more detrimental than if you didn't even have anything to begin with because then people start to not trust it and sort of create some barriers in the future. I know one issue with renewable energy has been figuring out ways to store the intermittent energy captured during off-peak hours for use during peak times. Uh, One idea I heard recently was the pumped energy storage system, where excess electricity could be used to pump water uphill into a holding tank, and then when more electricity is needed, the water would be released to flow downhill and through the turbines of a hydroelectric power system. Has there been any other recent progress in overcoming this issue? Well, yeah, the battery issue is one that's It's as old as renewable energy. It's still an issue. What we've been trying to suggest is that if it's possible to delay certain loads to times when you have more generation, that's always a good thing because then your battery bank doesn't have to be quite as big. You could probably get by with a little bit smaller, which means a smaller investment up front, and it means less maintenance in the long run. That's kind of the way we approach it, but... Technology is getting better. It sort of jumps sometimes here and there. So, for example, these the solar lanterns that we've been using lately, they have lithium phosphate batteries. And those are actually really incredible. They store a lot of energy and you can discharge them completely and there's no long-lasting effects. The cycles are quite large as well. So that, that's actually something that I hope takes off a little bit more because a lot of the smaller device manufacturers are using them now, but I haven't seen it in large scale installations yet. Maybe it's just a matter of time. But there's, there's other systems we've heard of too, like one where you make ice during the time when you're generating a lot of electricity, and that could be at night. That one's kind of a novel idea because it requires a lot of energy input, but ice is something that you can sell, and ice is something that people generally want. It's ways to more efficiently use energy so you're not wasting it in, at times of high generation. So instead of worrying about storing all that energy that you're generating during these times of high generation potential, you're instead moving your loads to those times so that you're using the times which require more input, you're using it during that time. And then the rest of the time, you're storing it in batteries or some storage which has enough capacity to last you until the next day. Some ways that people have been creatively thinking of ways to do this is in Bangladesh, I remember they did a lot of water irrigation during the day, like when solar resources were strong. That was like the bulk of their load anyway. Then they didn't have to store too much energy for nighttime use. It was just lights, basically. You either improve on the technology for storage or, you know, like yeah, even just like technology efficiency, or you also do some demand side management, uh, shedding the load, shifting the loads and things like that. So there has to be actually action taken on both sides. I'd say one of the other sort of 
barriers or difficulties that we've encountered is sometimes there is investment for renewable energy available, but the local capacity is not to the level where it can actually install that renewable energy. That's actually the sort of area where our organization is trying to sort of move into is providing that kind of training and capacity building where the investment can meet with the local capacity to actually install such a system. For example, if a big company were to donate a very large wind turbine, but an area doesn't have a crane large enough or the, the workforce that knows how to deal with such a huge wind turbine, then it can't work. There's been a recent resurgence of interest in nuclear fission uh, coming from a pretty unlikely source, well-known environmentalists such as Stuart Brand and James Lovelock. They contradict the traditional viewpoint of many environmentalists in this area and are supportive of new technologies such as thorium breeder reactors and micro reactors. So I'm curious to hear, what is your perspective on using nuclear as an alternative to fossil fuels? So the UAE, they're trying to become more energy independent. One of the things that we looked at was how their energy flows work and how they're moving towards renewables works as well. Before that, I would say that I was pretty much against nuclear. But now, I, I, I don't know, I, I see it as sort of a stepping stone. Because the good thing about nuclear is that it actually forces some countries to become more electricity-based, which in a way is better. So, like, for example, uh, UAE spends a ridiculous amount of money and energy on desalinating ocean water for consumption. But all of that was fueled by natural gas, which they would pipe in from Qatar. But the contract is ending soon. So they're putting in all these nuclear sort of installations, as well as renewable. The nuclear makes it so that they have to actually transition to like a reverse osmosis system, something that's electricity-based to filter the water. But but then that's easy to sort of, once those nuclear reactors get decommissioned, to actually replace them with uh, renewable. It's just unplugging one and plugging in the other, basically. I mean, I would say that the sort of, I don't know, idealist in me is kind of like, oh, nuclear is terrible. The sort of realist is also like, well, okay, it's a step in the right direction at least. And the thing is, nuclear is not exactly a cheap source of fuel. It's just cheaper than fossil fuel. I think eventually economics will win out and eventually it'll be to the point where it's like, oh, what are we doing? You know, this is, it's actually better to just do solar. So I think it's just a matter of time. You know, I think people really... When they get exposed to this, when they see that it actually makes economic sense, they're going to sort of demand it more. And what renewable energy technologies are you not a big fan of or think that there's too much unsubstantiated hype around? Because we were, we were working in Somaliland and originally there was a lot of hype about wind resources in Somaliland. Actually, like Kyle said, it's very, it's very difficult to install if you don't have if you don't have a local workforce with high technical capacity. Just because of that experience, I'm, I'm not too big a fan of wind, but I recognize that in other parts of the world where connective infrastructure is excellent, there's a lot of technical capacity, wind is great. Since our focus is mainly on developing areas, I think wind is, is very difficult to deploy to those kind of areas. I think biomass is also something that I would approach with caution because I am a little concerned 
with if governments and, and international agencies and organizations were to start pushing on biomass being a great renewable energy resource. I could foresee some some countries maybe pushing their agricultural sector towards producing crops or you know planting things that could generate biomass fuel instead of for food production. So basically land use could switch to like producing biomass instead of fulfilling food requirements and needs. So I would also be concerned about that. So I think biomass is great, but I think food comes first. Main priority should be to feed the people. And I just want to add one other thing is if we're talking about a village level system, there are some concerns with putting something that has a lot of potential risks into a village, especially if you're not doing the proper capacity building. So for example, like a digester, right, which uses methane gas. It's almost like baking bread. The mixture has to be just right, and then you get the gas out, and then what do you do with the gas? How do you store it you know, safely? And you could almost think of a, some digesters as sort of like a, a ticking time bomb in a way. If you don't do the right sort of things at the right time, then it could be potentially quite disastrous. But I mean, if it's handled correctly, then it shouldn't be a problem. There's also issues when, like, for example, a micro hydro system or maybe an even larger hydro system, a mini hydro, there's a lot of pressure that builds up at the base of the penstock where all the water kind of flows down. Again, if there's any issues with construction or maintenance, you know, it, it could potentially be a very dangerous situation. It's just something to sort of keep in mind to make sure that those systems are in place to prevent anything bad from happening. All right. Um, why might investing in renewable energy in frontier markets or developing countries be of interest to environmental investors? Well, I would say there's some areas where it's very ripe for investment. Like, for example, Somaliland comes to mind. Somaliland has leapfrogged a number of different technologies and their uh, banking transactions are mobile, their internet is fast and reliable. There's a lot of investment pouring in there. There's a very entrepreneurial spirit. The people have a very, uh, an organized community that is very sort of tight-knit. It actually helps the project a lot. An area where you have all of these like great aspects coming together, if someone were to just supply renewable energy, the pieces needed to put in systems or, you know, if there were more technical capacity to install these systems, I really think there's a lot of potential in those areas. And for an environmental investor, I think the returns could be very fast and it would help everyone in a way. I think at least in developing areas, people currently pay a lot of money for their energy needs. It's, it's very expensive energy. We're talking about, you know, diesel generators. And a lot of times people in rural developing areas are actually paying a lot more for their electricity and, and cooking fuels than people in urban areas. For example, in Somaliland, you know, they, they pay a dollar and 25 per kilowatt hour. That's a like four times. That's exorbitant. <laughs> I mean, that's four times what the rest of the world. That's a lot of almost, money. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of potential for profit in those places, while at the same time providing a much more reliable service, a cleaner service. But I think that people should also be 
looking forward. So I think that while you're investing in providing more reliable, cleaner energy to these frontier markets, we should also be thinking about how they could potentially be integrated into national grids if and when they come. So you don't lose out and you don't lose your investment and you, you actually continue to profit, especially once governments put things like feed-in tariffs in place. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there in that untapped markets. Uh, similar to the last question, and based on your international work and travel experiences, what markets or geographical regions do you think hold some of the most promising opportunities for environmental investing over, let's say, the next 10 years? There's been jumps in renewable energy invest- investments in the last few years or so, mostly in countries like China, Philippines, the newly industrialized countries. So I actually think that countries like Philippines, Indonesia, in Southeast Asia are great markets to go into because the governments are receptive. They're ready to move their policies towards towards friendlier environments for renewable energy. People are positive. In, in Indonesia, microhydro technology is actually pretty mature. It's not as if people don't believe in the potential. And so I, I personally think that Southeast Asia is a great market for environmental investing in, say, the next 10 years or so. Sub-Saharan Africa oh as gosh. well, yes. <laughs> actually. That, that was what I was going to yeah. say. Just the innovation that has come out of there is really impressive because you have world-class leading payment systems. You have world-class leading business models. I think it's the forefront of renewable energy right now is places like Kenya, places like Uganda, Somaliland is getting into that a little bit, but could be potentially here in a little while. And then Ghana, and there's so much potential. And I think everyone realizes it. And now it's just almost a matter of time until it all starts piling in, I think. And India is also a very, India is a place where there's been a lot of really good grassroots movements and a lot of interesting business models. A lot of the people that we know that are involved in renewable energy are in India or they come from India. I think government-led initiatives are going to be in Southeast Asia. We'll see a lot of innovation and business models coming out of Sub-Saharan Africa, but I think technology and innovations, South Asia still sort of leads, yeah, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India, I mean, they've come up with, with a lot of very creative and innovative technologies. And they've driven the price down, which yeah. is really important. And they're, they're really low-cost, simple technologies like building concrete micro-hydro casings for their turbines, which is, is pretty cool, actually. <laughs> like when you think about it, right, it's, it's, it's easy to do in rural and off-grid areas. Yeah. Or, or um, solar home systems that basically undercut everyone in the market. <laughs> you know, there's all these big companies that are making solar home systems, but then there's this one in Bangladesh that offers way better and, and like for way cheaper. Yeah. 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 All right. For the last question, can you each think of a specific book, article, or film that has most inspired you to pursue the work that you're doing now? So one of the sort of interesting things that we've been involved with at Mazdar was a course called Energy and Poverty Solutions. And there was a reading list for that course. The books that I read there were the ones that I would recommend to anyone who is getting involved in development sector or renewable energy or just 
overlapping areas, but they're sort of more development focused and less energy focused. I think it's very important to understand how development works in order to understand renewable energy because, I mean, this is the, some people label it the bottom of the pyramid, right? Where, where this is the biggest portion of people who need energy. So I think if you don't understand that, then you can't understand everything else. <laughs> so so the, the books that I sort of refer back to are Nicholas Kristof's Half the Sky, Paul Polak's Out of Poverty, uh, Peter Singer, The Life You Can Save, Tracy Kidder, Mountains Beyond Mountains, the Paul Farmer Partners in Health book. Ones like that, I think they're really inspiring, but there's also a lot of really good development lessons there. Mine would specifically actually be Tracy Kidder's Mountains Beyond Mountains, because I think it basically taught me that just from reading about Paul Farmer's story, if you want to do something, you actually have to do it wholeheartedly and just focus all your energy on it. And so that basically was what motivated me to stop messing around in a way (laughs) and actually start focusing my energy and time on something that I believe in. That's why I would would actually mention that book for myself. Thank you for sharing. Uh, You can find links to the books that Kyle and IU mentioned in the show notes on environmentalinvesting.com. On each episode, we have a special segment called the Environmental Audio Challenge. For this segment, our featured guest gives a fun challenge for our listeners to respond to. But first, let's hear our top response from last episode's Environmental Audio Challenge. This comes from Ray, a listener from Wisconsin who is responding to the challenge to share an example of conservation and resource management from their community. Hi, this is Ray. I'm responding to the Environmental audio challenge. And um, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. I live in Wisconsin, and there are a couple of individuals who were important in Wisconsin's past who uh, solved some, uh, actually were leaders in help solving some of our environmental problems, not only here in the state of Wisconsin, but also uh, some of the environmental problems in our country. Uh, One of those people was Aldo Leopold. Uh, Aldo Leopold lived from uh, about 1887 to 1948. Um, Though he was born and raised in Iowa, uh, he was educated uh, back east and then eventually came here to Wisconsin uh, in about 1924. uh, And then He settled in Madison, Wisconsin, and eventually became a a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. But um, he um, was really the development of the modern environmental ethics movement, Uh, one of the founders of movement. A book that I've read uh, much of called A Sand County Almanac, uh, was published uh, after his death, but it had it was a collection of essays where he talked about the environment, and he, he got across very effectively. If you read the essays, he got across very effectively the fact that uh, in an ecosystem you cannot mess with one thing in the environment without affecting the whole, and um, he just had a very unique way 
a very careful way of looking at interactions in, in an ecosystem. And uh, it was through his writings, primarily in the San County Almanac, that uh, he began uh, the environmental movement. He was also a founder of the science of wildlife management. So here in Wisconsin, we uh, who are hunters, I'm not a hunter, but there are many up here who are, enjoy his work with uh, the science of wildlife management because our uh, our Department of Natural Resources now manages uh, our deer herd for hunters. And um, I grew up in Indiana, and I remember as a child that the deer were almost non-existent down there. But when I moved up here to Wisconsin in 1971, um, I realized that um, there, it was a completely different story up here. There was well-managed deer herd, and hunters were able to hunt year after year because of that managed herd. We also have uh, a wolf population now that it's managed up here. And all of this is possible because of men like Aldo Leopold, who uh, were uh, pioneers, really, in things such as uh, environmental movement and wildlife management and that sort of thing. All right, back to Kyle and IU. Do you have an environmental audio challenge that you'd like to give to our listeners? Okay, so I did come up with one. Recently, we did a course in Indonesia. There were a number of sort of young professionals. So we gave them this challenge, which was at the time we were staying in a village. So they, they could kind of go around and see the village and talk to the villagers. But we wanted them to figure out a business model for some kind of development project. And so I'm going to sort of set this up a little bit. And then any listener who wants to sort of give some input on what they think a good business model would be in an area like this, specifically for development purposes, then maybe they can come up with some ideas. Because the ideas we got from the uh, participants were good, but I'm just very curious to know what other people would come up with. So this village is relatively small, but it's very interconnected. I mean, it's, it's, it's got roads, it's got uh, electricity lines, water is available. There's an enormous amount of water resources. So even in the dry season, you can still get water from the wells. The paddy fields still have water. It's a rural village, but it's close to an airport. There's some 3G <laughs> coverage there. It's interesting because there's a lot of older people and a lot of younger kids because a lot of the middle-aged people sort of go into the city to work. The idea is to come up with some, something you would implement. So I guess to give you some ideas, we can share some of what the participants came up with, but it would be also very interesting to hear what the listeners would come up with. So one of the things that happens there uh, is everyone boils their water and they use a lot of wood generally or sometimes LPG to boil the water. In order to sort of save time and effort, the group that I was helping, they came up with an idea to just put in a, a solar water heater in the village that would service 30 families maybe or so. And then there might be a delivery service sort of associated with that. So you deliver boiling water. Yeah, our, our group came up with electric bikes because people use um, motorbikes a lot over there and the nearest gas station was pretty far away so they wanted to come up with these solar charging systems and electric bikes and, and it was a sharing electric vehicle sharing idea that was what our group came up with one of the other groups came up with a biogas distribution another one came up with uh, using iPads to uh, teach typing skills 
But yeah, I'm very interested to know what other things that people might come up with. All right. You're going to have to get creative as you come up with a business or development idea that could be implemented in a rural village like the type that Kyle described. To respond to this environmental audio challenge, please call our number at 415-887-2367 and leave a message. Our top responses will air on the next episode, so stay tuned. All right, Kyle and I, you, thank you so much for staying up late and talking to me all the way from Malaysia. I've really enjoyed our discussion and felt like I've learned a lot about renewable energy. Thanks, Aaron. We really appreciate everything and love being on your show and anytime <laughs> we would love to talk to yeah, you. It's been again. a great discussion and I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Environmental Investing. You can go to environmentalinvesting.com to find the links from this episode's show notes, as well as back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. And now a message from this episode's featured musical guest. Hey guys, this episode's music is brought to you by The Fundamental Elements. My name is Mark DeJames, and I'm the bass player from the band, and I really hope you enjoy listening. And I thought that you should know That I'll never let you go Ooh, One more thing I know for sure Someday you hear me say I told you don't say This is my last day with you No, I'll never give up No matter what you do And don't say that your life's gone away from you No, I'll never believe Cause it's just not true, no a mystery when I come see you and me think about the history you see that you were meant for me Ooh, and I thought that you should know that I'll never let you go Ooh, one more thing I know for sure someday you hear me say I told you don't say this is my last day with you no I'll never give up no matter what you do and don't say that your life's gone away from you no I'll never Don't say this is my